Bowing your heads, please join me in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come as the wind and cleanse. Come as the fire and burn. Convert and consecrate our lives for our great good and for the greater glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As perhaps some of you know, I have uh, recently called for uh, the election of a bishop coadjutor, which means that my retirement is at hand, at least a year from now, but this will be my last Easter here with you at the cathedral. And of course, when one begins to prepare for retirement, uh, one begins uh, a passage, if you will. And not only do I begin a passage, but the diocese, the Anglican Diocese of South Carolina begins a passage. And passages are times of great opportunity, and they are also times of possible danger. Some years ago now, I say some years, probably 30, Gail Shea wrote a book entitled Passages. It became a, a, a bestseller. She took the the deep research of a sociologist named Levinson and another sociologist, Eric Erickson, and she popularized, popularized for most people the passages of life that we go through from infancy through childhood, adolescence into young adult years, midlife crises, the last stages of life. We have them all here today, represented in this congregation, people in life's passages. You can get stuck in an unhelpful way sometimes in a, a passage of life, such as the child, the boy who remains the perpetual Peter Pan, the adolescence that goes on way too long the young adulthood that never seems to step into maturity, and, and then the, those stages where some end up in a personal care home, and during this time of COVID, make the great passage of life alone. They can be dangerous times. You can get stuck. Even great cargo ships can get stuck in passages. Evergreen, the cargo ship, got stuck at the bottom of the Suez Canal on March 23rd. It remained there for almost a week, blocking traffic in one of the great market passages of the world. Every day it was stuck. The international trade lost $10 billion dollars. So you can imagine they brought the best engineers in the world there to the Suez Canal to see if they could get it unstuck. They worked for six days, and it was only after an inflowing tide lifted the boat that she began this quarter-mile-long, four-football-fields-length cargo ship was finally dislodged and opened up the passage. 
People like ships can get stuck in the passages of life. Sometimes we don't know how to leave it. And sometimes we don't want to leave one stage and enter another. He was in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem during the few days known as Holy Week after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and entered into the city in triumph among palm branches and shouts of Hosanna, there arrived some Gentiles. They were Greeks, according to John's Gospel, who had journeyed to Jerusalem to be a part of the Jewish Passover. There were, you know, Gentiles who believed or were impressed with Judaism and the life of the Jewish people and especially the God of the Jewish people. And so they in some way or another associated but never became full Jewish converts and the men never became circumcised. They were known as God-fearers by the Jews. And some of them approached one of Jesus' disciples named Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida, which is a Jewish town in Galilee that is surrounded by Gentile towns, Greco-Roman cities. And so since Andrew and Philip obviously had Greek names and spoke Greek, they approached Philip and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. I wonder how many of you here at the cathedral came this morning because you wanted to see Jesus, to get a glimpse of his wonder, to hear his voice speak to your heart, perhaps your heart in anxiety, your heart in fear, maybe some of you in grief. Do you hear his voice, the voice that is the voice of the good shepherd who said, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and I call them by name, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That voice, a word of peace, a word of challenge, a word of hope, to feel the touch of his hand, the warmth of his embrace. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, Philip immediately went to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went to Jesus, and they told him, they want to see you. And Jesus heard in that request the call to step into the great passage of his life. For he heard that the world, he heard in the world, he heard this people crying for a Messiah beyond a Jewish Messiah. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And he knew what that meant. And he said, now is the hour. And what shall I say? Father, remove this hour from me. 
know it was for this hour that I have come. And then he said to his disciples, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, all women to myself. Lifted up on the cross. Lifted up from the earth. So he knew it was the passage that he was to go into. And troubling it is. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. The writer to the Hebrews put it this way, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. It is helpful for us to remember the temptations, the struggles, even the confusions that crowded around the life of Christ. He was, as you know, a human being like us, with fears like us, difficulties like us, anxieties like us. He was, as the Bible says, every way tempted as we are, yet did not sin. And we should expect to hear a familiar voice from out of his humanity, a voice that sounds a lot like our voice, a voice which is from time to time troubled and surrounded by confusion. Never think he does not know confusion. Never think he does not understand anxiety. Never think he did not shudder at the thought of death. What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour. It was for this hour I've come. Father, glorify yourself. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. It had a double meaning. Let's deal with the first one first. He knew that this was all about the cross. When Jesus turns away from the temptation to pray the Father to save him from the hour he steps into the cross he wills the cross, he wills the suffering he wills for it to bring glory to the Father and most of all he wills it to draw all people to himself that they might be drawn to the great passageway of life If I be lifted up, I will draw all to myself. Who are they, these people that he will draw? Maybe some of them are here. Maybe some of them are you. I'm sorry that wind is blowing against this microphone. And you know what? Maybe it's the wind of the Holy Spirit I press on. <laughs> Who are these people? Well, one of the people whom he calls through the cross are those who suffer. It is not always the theologian or the preacher who understands best the meaning of the cross. Sometimes it is the humble believer who in the midst of great physical pain, emotional suffering, has clung tenaciously to the cross to his crucified Savior. 
And there are some men and women here this morning who know of the cross of Christ in a way I do not. And I'm humbled by that. For you have clung to the cross of Christ in the midst of overwhelming suffering and defeat and at times utter hopelessness. Except for the hope that he to whom you cling raises the dead. Men and women who through suffering and pain and broken relationships and inner emotional distress have found themselves drawn to the cross of Christ. I was preaching one Sunday at a, at a very distinguished church. You might call it the church of the aristocratic, the, the patricians and matricians of the culture. And for whatever reason, I chose to preach that Sunday on the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross that draws us who suffer. And after the sermon was over, I was sitting in what is their bishop's chair, which is a chair right beside the altar rail. And I was sitting there as people came up to receive the sacrament. And one of the last ones to come up was a very distinguished aristocratic-looking man, probably in his 70s. And he knelt down to receive the, the body and blood of Christ, and I thought to myself, oh my, Mark, you really missed it with that, with that one. I couldn't imagine he had known all that much suffering in his life. And I thought, boy, I missed the mark. You know, that's one of the definitions of sin, missed the mark, missing the mark of life. I thought, gosh, I missed it. Well, after the service was over and people were coming out and I was greeting them in the narthex, the back of the church, this man was one of the last ones out and he paused and he shook my hand, pointed to my cross. And he says, I have to say, when you mentioned those who clung to the cross of Jesus Christ, in the midst of their suffering. It was all I could do to hold myself together. You see, Bishop, I buried my wife three months ago. She died of brain cancer. And every day I would put her cross around her neck and she would grasp it in her right hand and hold it in the midst of her pain. And she died holding that cross, clutching it to her breast. Who does he draw if he be lifted up on this cross? He draws all who suffer. And there are some here today who have been drawn by that. There's another group of people he draws through the cross. All sinning men and women who once catch sight of the cross of Christ as the place of forgiveness, as the place of new beginning and new opportunity, not a second chance but another chance, are drawn to the cross of Christ. Insights into the spiritual life come in a blazing light as it came to St. Paul on the road to Damascus 
but most frequently men and women find themselves drawn bit by bit into a greater experience of Christ, often more through their failures than through their successes. We are confronted by our sins and our sinfulness, our self-will that hurts others, our self-centeredness that shames us, and our utter inability to change ourselves because that which we don't want to do, we keep on doing, and that which we do want to do, we don't, don't do. And that is the human condition. And once we see that there is a place for this condition at the cross, we are drawn there. You, said St. Paul, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, hostile to God, hostile to the gospel, hostile to other people. You who are once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is reconciled in the body of his flesh through his death in order to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. So we have this sinfulness, this burdensome, unwanted baggage of guilt and we can repress it, say it's not there. We can project it onto somebody else. We can lay blame to others for it. We can even make it our companion as something that defines who we are. Or we can lay it down today at the cross of Jesus Christ and be forgiven and healed and delivered from guilt and shame and the burden of it. And I be, if I be lifted up from the earth on the cross, I will draw all to myself. One quickly, one final group. And I believe I see some of you here. He will draw all earnest seekers after truth. As Jesus said to Pilate, I am of the truth, and he who is of the truth hears my voice. No man, said Charles Henry Brent, no man who has gone halfway down life's pathway can fail to be possessed by a passionate desire for reality in himself and others. He wants to get at the root of things. That is, he traces beauty to its source. He wants to trace justice and have it unfold in the world. He recognizes that relationships ultimately are all that truly matter when all is said and done. Relationships with others, relationships with God. They want to get to the root of things. Beauty, justice, relationship, life. What's it all about? And Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. Those who love beauty, truth, and justice and find in me the answer for their lives. Sir, we want to see Jesus. And so Jesus heard the call for the cross. But there's another thing that he means by that. And you know, the Gospel of John is filled with these double meanings because Jesus understood the double meaning. So when he said, if I be lifted up from the earth, he meant not only lifted up on the cross, but lifted up from the grave. 
which brings us to this morning. You got to go through Good Friday to get to Easter. So it brings us to this morning. At the earliest possible moment, caught in their grief, some women went to the tomb because they had no place else to go. They didn't expect to find a risen body. They expected to find a a dead body. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. The women, they're the ones that so often help through life's passages. And it's always good when there's a wise woman that helps you. I wonder if you had a wise woman in your past. I certainly had several in mine. But these women, they, they go to the tomb. They go to the tomb to take ointments for a dead body. And they find the gospel instead. You say, what's the gospel, Bishop? Well, Paul described it well when he said, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preach, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That is, you are like a person who has been shipwrecked into the cold waters of the North Atlantic and a lifeboat has come along and plucked you out of the cold water and put you in the boat and now it's heading towards the port. But the stormy seas are still there and the port is a long way off. But you are being saved. You've been plucked out, rescued and are being saved. And what is saving you? Paul says, this is what is saving you. For I delivered to you of most importance what I received, that Christ died for your sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared first to Peter, and then to all the twelve apostles, and then to 500 brothers, most of whom are still alive, though some have died and fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and last of all, he appeared to me as one who is untimely born. Now each of those statements begin with a that, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day and that he appeared. But I suppose if you were paying attention when the the lesson was being read, and it was read well for us, by the way, that you may have noticed that all those who saw the risen Christ listed by the Apostle Paul were men. Which may have you scratching your head. Because if you've ever read Matthew's gospel, you know the first ones that saw the risen Jesus were women. 
what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is quite simple. The Apostle Paul is listing men because they are the only ones who are accepted as witnesses in a court of law in the first century. And he is building a case. As all the apostles were building the case. But sometimes God likes to build his own case. And sometimes he likes to do it with women. Because you know women are very good in life's passages. And they were there for Jesus in the great passages of salvation. They were not only the first ones to go to the tomb and see the risen Christ, but they were there at the cross because Mark says, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph and Salome, And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came with him to Jerusalem. They gathered around. He understood them. And they loved him. Some of them loved him because he was the first man they had ever met that did not want to use them, but wanted to heal them, not hurt them. And they were there when he was buried, Mark says. For Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Joseph of Arimathea laid the dead body. And they were there at the resurrection. Wise women, do you have one in your life? I had one in mine as a boy. My great-aunt, Auntie Ethel. She was more than just a great-aunt because she was the woman who raised my mother because my mother's mother died in childbirth. Passages can be dangerous. And so my mother went to live with Auntie Ethel because the woman my grandfather married abused her. And so Auntie Ethel was the healer. She introduced my mother to life and hope. And she introduced me into life's passages too. I remember one fateful day, Auntie Ethel took my older brother Porter, my older sister Pam, and me along an old Indian trail is what we call them, I guess Native American trail that wove through the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. And we came after a couple of mile hike to a place in the Thule River where a great pool of crystal clear water comes down from the high mountains. And above the crystal clear water was a stone higher than that pulpit. And Annie Ethel said, you kids can go up on that stone and you can hop off of that boulder into the water. Well, my brother was the first one up on top. He was a good swimmer and he jumped on in. My sister, she, two years older than I, she got up to the top and she jumped in. I, eight or nine years old, climbing up, it seemed to me to be a thousand feet down to that water. 
And I stood there, paralyzed. Nanny said to me, it's okay, Mark, you can jump. I was holding my breath by now, still not in the water. She says, it's okay, Mark, you can jump. But still I was paralyzed. Finally she said, Mark, go ahead, you can do it. And I leapt off the stone. When my feet first hit the water, it felt kind of warm, but down I went, and the deeper I went, the colder the water became. And pretty soon, since I had been holding my breath already for a minute and a half on top of the boulder, I thought my lungs might burst before I could get back up into the, the surface. And just when I was in a point of desperation, I felt the sandy bottom, and I pushed off up into the bright sunlight of day. And I thought, that's just scary enough, I want to do it again. <laughs> that's the way it is in life, isn't it? It was through things like that that she ushered me into life. But I thank God that I got to usher her into death. Because when I was a young priest, pastoring a rural congregation in a farmland in California. My Auntie Ethel was dying in my hometown about 25 miles away. And I'd drive into the hospital and find her there at Mercy Hospital. And often when I came into the room, she was holding on to the bed rail as if she was holding on to life itself. And I'd awaken her. And I knew she was not a church-going woman. I don't know if she was ever baptized. But I would come in and I would talk to her and I began to talk about the one who saves us, the one that died on the cross for our sins, that was buried, that rose again, that, that appeared to the apostles. And little by little, I guess she began to believe. And she got out of the hospital for a short period of time, and on Easter Sunday, my mother drove her out to the church that I served, and when my mother came forward on Easter Sunday to receive communion, she said to me, Auntie, who was back in the back of the church in a wheelchair, she said, Auntie said she'd like communion. So I took the host back to her, thinking to myself, I don't know if she's been baptized. But don't tell the bishop I'm going to give it to Auntie Ethel if she wants it. So I gave her the body of Christ. You know, I gave her the bread of the one who said, I'm the bread of life. If a woman eats of me, she shall live forever. And the bread that I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. And she received the body and blood of Christ, the medicine of eternity. Shortly after that, she was back in the hospital. And my mother called one Sunday morning just after the service was over, and she said, Mark, if you can come into town, you need to come right away because the doctor said she may not last very long. So I drove into town, met my mother and an aunt in the corridor of the hospital, and I said to them, you know, I'm not going to pray that God will heal her. If you don't mind, I'm just going to pray that he takes her in peace. So we went in, and I anointed her with oil, put my hands on her forehead, 
And I began to pray, and I did not see this because my eyes were closed, but my mother and my aunt swear it happened, that a presence came as I prayed that went down her whole body, down to her feet, back up to her head. And after it went back up to her head, she let go of the bed rail and sank into the deep waters of death. And I suppose the deeper she went, the colder it became until she got to the bottom, the rock that is Christ, and she pushed off like an alligator come up from the mud into a, a room of a thousand candles of delicate wax into the halls of eternity into the presence of Christ. It's good to have a wise woman in your life. It's even better to have a Savior. For one day, she will have a body like his body that will have continuity with what went before and discontinuity, thanks God, for what was it shall be a body like the body of Jesus. And one day, you and I will have that body. And those we have buried in Christ shall have that body. And we shall recognize one another. And they shall recognize us. And most of all, we shall recognize the one who did it even Jesus Christ. So I tell, say to you this morning, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And so will you, and so will I, and so will all in Christ. And that is the good news. Amen.